I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. We're in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 24. The Lord of armies has sworn, as I have purposed, so it will be. As I have planned it, so it will happen. I will break Assyria in my hand. I will tread him down on my mountain. Then his yoke will be taken from them and his burden will be removed from their shoulders. This is the plan prepared for the whole earth. And this is the hand stretched out against all the nations. The Lord of armies himself has planned it. Therefore, who can stand in its way? It is his hand that is outstretched. So who can turn it back? So we go up a chain of command. Ultimately, it has to stop at God. Within governmental structures, like we talked about uh, in our devotion at the end of last week, God's at the top of the chain of command. We are citizens in local municipalities, counties, parts of states, with their own governmental structures, right? Each united with 49 other states and multiple territories forming one nation. And then that nation answers ultimately to God. Uh, we may cooperate with other nations. We may participate in the UN. Not that it does a whole lot, honestly. We're part of NATO. Man, but we are ultimately a sovereign nation, and whatever is sovereign answers to the ultimate sovereignty of God. Churches are separate from the state. This is a good thing. Today, the term separation of church and state is often used as an argument to tell Christians to just throw away their morality and allow something evil to happen and just to tacitly approve of it and shut up because we don't want to hear about standards of what's right and what's wrong. It's actually in a perfect reverse of the original intent for what separation of church and state is. It borrows from a term that, that was written to a Baptist association by one of the founding fathers about this wall of separation between the church and the state. They knew very well what had happened when the church and the state were commingled and the depravity of man corrupted the church and then that power was abused. Then mankind began to use the power of the church and speak edicts as though they were from God when in fact they were, they were not. And so what was established was this practice of separating the church and the state so that the church can function like the church without a conflict of interest trying to kowtow to a government. The true nature of separation in church and state is getting the state out of the church's business. That's what the separation of church and state has always actually been. So in our governmental structures, there's a hierarchy that's several, several rungs high on this massive ladder. Within the church, particularly a non-denominational church, the hierarchy ultimately ends at God pretty quickly. Some denominations will have a system of hierarchy. The Southern Baptist Convention doesn't actually have such a hierarchy. In fact, it's not really a denomination. This is a common misconception. They picture this big office, uh, you know, at SBC headquarters, which was directly across the street from my office uh, in Nashville for a little while. And they picture these guys making decisions and issuing out orders to the Baptist churches. And then the Baptist pastors receive the orders and they give them to elders or deacons and then they carry it out. Uh, and if they don't do what the SBC says, then they're going to, I don't know, suffer some sort of disciplinary consequence. And the truth is that every one of those churches is fully autonomous. They cooperate and they willingly, voluntarily give funds. They pool funds from their churches giving to be able to fund seminaries and a missions organization. And that's the cooperative program among Southern Baptists. United Methodists are different. In fact, the recent schism within the United Methodist Church, I use that, that word with pain, 
but I'm also grateful for what the Holy Spirit's doing in some of the Methodist churches uh, that, that have all stayed true to the Word of God. There actually is a hierarchy uh, in that the denomination does have authority. And in fact, in some ways, the, it's actually the United Methodist Church legally exists as one singular church. It actually owns some of the properties where the churches are built. Uh, this has affected us at the Redemption Church as we've tried to purchase property that once belonged to a Methodist church. And then it was unclear there were issues on the, on the deed. We didn't know who owned it. They, they didn't have 100% totally free and clear title to be able to sell the property because somebody else may have had a claim to it. So whether your church functions as a non-denominational church or as an independent church like a Baptist church or as part of a denomination uh, like what was the United Methodist Church, uh, the chain of hierarchy wherein you're going to answer to God, it gets shorter and shorter. And so ultimately, yeah, like for example, the Redemption Church, Pastor Mike and I serve as the elders of the Redemption Church. And we are accountable to the congregation quite directly, but we don't belong to a denominational body. We do not belong to, uh, we do not belong to uh, a larger organization. We're fully independent. There are no organizations that helped us get to where we are, to the great, you know, financially healthy place that the church is, or we're saving and saving and saving to be able to buy property here. Uh, rather, if I mess up, if I, as your pastor, sin, you come to me, speak to me directly. All right. Uh, you confront me and Matthew 18 takes effect. You know, and this, this has happened where believers have come to me and brought up issues or perceived issues. Oftentimes, uh, uh, in fact, like 90% of the time, the, the issue is resolved at step one, probably more than 90% of the time, especially in my life, it never gets past step one. Uh, and then step two, you bring two or three witnesses. And then if it, there's still a lack of repentance, then you bring it before the larger body of believers. This has never failed. This is how we handle conflict and how we handle issues. Uh, within the original intent for Isaiah uh, Isaiah 14, we can see how God ultimately is the authority over the church. It's his church. He is the chief shepherd. Pastors and elders are the under shepherds, right? And nations likewise answer ultimately to the authority of God. Every single one of us does answer to God. God is absolutely sovereign then. The chains of command, whether in churches or in governments, all have to stop somewhere. They cannot go in an indefinite loop. If they do go in a loop, then you end up being responsible for your own discipline, <laughs> ultimately, right? So it has to, it can't stretch backwards into negative infinity. It has to stop somewhere. And it always ultimately stops at the authority with a capital A, God. And what God says he will do, he does. God will grant freedom. All right, we do in fact have freedom. The very first words that God spoke to man in the Garden of Eden were, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat. We don't have a whole lot to show for that free will though. Because of our depraved nature, we use that freedom. We mostly just mess up with it, All right? We sin with it. So there are, there are grantings of freedoms among angelic beings. We're gonna talk about that. Uh, we talked about that in our sermon yesterday. Uh, wherein angels were given a degree of freedom. There, there's freedom given to mankind. But again, don't take this too far. Don't, don't deify your own free will because what do we really have to show for our free will? We give in a temptation and we sin and we mess up. Um, but God in his sovereignty, as is his prerogative as the creator and author and arbiter of justice, has the full right to, for example, harden Pharaoh's heart. 
in some of the plagues of Egypt to harden the heart of the Antichrist to bring about, or the beast as he's called in Revelation, to bring about his sovereign will. He has the right to make out of the same lump of clay some things for noble use and some for common use. Jacob, whose name would change to Israel, the progenitor of Israel, right? Esau, his fraternal twin brother, becomes the progenitor of the nation of Edom, who you're going to see is a neighbor of Moab, uh, a text that we're going to we're going to address in, in just a couple of chapters here. God has the right to do this. His sovereign, his sovereign realized will always comes to pass. And there's no one above him in the hierarchy to check him. This is a, nece- this is a necessity for all hierarchies everywhere. They all ultimately answer to God. The Lord of armies has sworn, as I have purposed, so it will be. As I have planned, so it will happen. That's the first verse of this text. The final verse, the Lord of armies himself has planned it. Therefore, who can stand in its way? It is his hand that is outstretched. So who can turn it back? God needs no accountability. He's the ultimate embodiment of holiness and he is sovereign. There's no one you go to above God. And there's no one you would ever need to go to above God. There's actually a moral argument for God in this. We see in our world, right, that we bear the fingerprints of a benevolent creator. And we see in our world the effects of the sin that we invited into it. We look up from our Bibles and we look at the world and we see exactly what we ought to expect based on what we've just read. So the goodness that exists in the world is like God. Everything else is an absence of him because we have chosen darkness over light. So when we look at the effects of sin on the world, like we saw yesterday in Romans 8, it's groaning. It's longing to be redeemed. God will redeem it. And he has decreed that he will. It's all written in Revelation. It's written in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, described in 1st Corinthians 15. Every prophetic text, you're going to see more of it in Isaiah. All of the Bible is God decreeing that he's going to do this, and there's nobody who's going to stop him from doing it, and there's no one who can criticize him from doing it. There's no accountability structure around God. He is the ultimate zenith of all accountability structures. So this is the death knell for what's called open theism. All right, open theism is the idea that that God is just sort of sitting back, all right, watching things happen. And he's just as surprised as we are at the headlines and at the news. Open theism is a heresy and it, it necessarily involves a diminished view of God. And it might as well rip Isaiah out of your Bible and 1 Corinthians and Revelation and Matthew 24, like every prophetic text in all the Bible, if you adhere to open theism, you might as well just rip them all out of your Bible and say, no, God, you were incorrect. God has the ability to do this because he is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is timeless in his nature. And as a result, prophecy comes quite easily to him. He exists simultaneously at the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and He is the Omega. Who are we as finite, sin-stained creatures to argue with Him? God has said that He would do this, and what He has said He's going to do is destroy Assyria. Assyria was this world superpower that were seemed just indomitable, all right? Like Alabama football in 2019, but way more epic. Nobody could touch the Assyrians. But God has said that he's going to do this. He has planned it, so it will happen. He has outstretched his hand, so who can turn it back? Here comes the smack, Assyria. God said that he would do this, all right? It would come as a shock to the original recipients. Uh, the, the king Tiglath-Pileser III 
actually attacked the northern kingdom of Israel at one point, and uh, he reduced its size. And then in, in the 730s BC and in, in, uh, in 722 BC, under Shalmaneser, he deported many of the citizens of the northern kingdom. But God would bring even the Assyrians to an end. What I want you to take away from this is, first of all, the, the original intent, God said that he's going to destroy Assyria. And he did. God is absolutely sovereign. There's no one who can argue with him. When he decrees what he's going to do, he always does it. And he's at the top of all hierarchical structures who can argue with him. He is ultimately then culpable for all things, and he can handle that. Obviously, he is God.